Welcome to the Midlife Crisis Cards Podcast with your host, Darren Herman. This podcast explores the world of sports cards from a variety of angles. Being a hobbyist collector for over 30 years, a professional software investor and angel investor in and around the card space, and a proud father who is raising children who collect and appreciate sports cards. If you want to learn more about Midlife Crisis Cards, head over to midlifecrisiscards.com where you can read his journey to card collecting, his history, and find some awesome individual cards to purchase from his personal collection. Or check out our brand new product, the Cardboard Box, a personalized and hand-selected box of cards that arrive at your front door. On the Midlife Crisis Cards Podcast, we explore the convergence of Darren's worlds in the sports card industry, where hobby meets business. Without further ado, Please meet our host, Darren Herman, a.k.a. at Midlife Crisis Cards on Instagram and dherman76 on Twitter. All right. I am here with John, the basketball card guy, and I am super excited about this one. This the be- John has basically been there from day one since I came back into the hobby. And at first he was a supplier to me and I was fawning over his Instagram accounts and his website. And I was like, my gosh, this guy has his stuff together and he (laughs) knows what he's doing. And then he shipped me uh, one of my first packages and I'll always remember he had this card, this insert card uh, that he had made of himself that looked like a net marvels card, which I have a bunch of. And I was like, Oh my God, we're cut from the same cloth. This guy's amazing. I need to reach out to this guy. And so I did. And I wrote him an email. I felt like a fanboy, like a stalker. And I wrote him an email and it's been history ever since. I don't know why he listens to me, but he, he, he entertains me every once in a while. And, uh, <laughs> and so, uh, I've got John from basketball card guy here with me. Hey, John, how are you doing? Good, Darren. Pleasure to be here. I am so excited to have you here. Um, you know, we've been chatting about the hobby ever since uh, I entered back. Now you've been here for a long time. What's your What's your background? What's your history? How did you get into this crazy space? Well, I, I started like most people do. Their dads, you know, are interested in cards in one way or another. My dad was a big baseball card collector back in the late fifties, early sixties. Uh, he put away his cards, as many do, in the uh, in the attic, in the basement, in a shoebox, uh, only to discover them years later uh, after I was born and saw that, you know, kind of my eyes lit up when seeing these, you know, kind of ancient pieces of cardboard uh, coming out of Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris and all these big name players. And he was telling me about them. And I could see, like, the emotion from him remembering when he was a kid and it kind of brought him back. Um, so it got me into collecting them. He actually gifted the cards to me at that point. Um, and, but baseball wasn't my sport, you know, so I, I didn't really enjoy watching baseball on TV. I had only been to like maybe a game, you know, so it was, it was never that, it was never my passion, you know, but basketball was, and I discovered in the early nineties, they make basketball cards too. It's, it's not amazing, just baseball. Huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that was my passion was like, I, I want to pick up these cards of the people I know, the people that I enjoy watching play. And so it very much mirrored what he had, but it was my own zone. Um, and my son today, he collects Pokemon cards in, in very much the same vein. You know, he isn't awesome. as interested in watching basketball as I am, but 
has his own thing. So I think it's a nice generational kind of hand down that we all kind of I don't know if it's genetic uh, for for us, but, you know, in some way that that collecting mentality, but certainly there, certainly there. It feels like if if it happened to us, we pass it down to our children and it's similar <laughs> right. in, in, in in the hermit household over here. So, awesome. so you, you know, yeah, but they don't have you, to collect the same exact thing. You know, it's like nope. but but collecting in general is pretty cool, you know. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, we're going to get into kind of how you're doing and what you're doing, but I want to just, you know, double click on sort of, you know, growing up as a kid and you, you know, you are deep into the hobby and you're still deep into the hobby today. And I'd love to know, you know, I'm sure a lot of listeners would like to know, you know, what is the same and what has changed, you know, from buying wax or buying cards or going to the card shop, you know, what, what, what have you seen sort of change over the years? Of prices, it's <laughs> probably the biggest thing. Unfortunately, I Amen. mean, kid, kid, me couldn't possibly with with the money that I had in hand as a as a kid when I got involved in this originally, could not afford a box, maybe even a pack in some of these kinds of cases now. Um, so that's probably the biggest single change is the price. But um, I don't know. A lot is a lot of the stuff has stayed the same in the sense that there's still. I kind of feel like they're pieces of the player. It's a memory that's kind of encased in and something that you can hold and look at and enjoy. There's art to it that I've always appreciated. Both of my parents were artists. My dad was a graphic designer. My mom was a illustrator. So I always had kind of an appreciation of art in the home. And um, and cards are art. And most of them, some of them are ugly, but most of them are really art. You know, they're artful. They're well-designed. Um, both through the picture that you choose, you know, as the, the person designing the card, you know, and also some of the effects that started in the nineties and, and lived through to today. So I think that the, um, in terms of what's the same, it's that, that kind of feeling you get when you're looking at them, that they encase something. Um, but they are just way more expensive today for something that would be comparable to 20, 30 years ago. Absolutely. <laughs> I feel your pain there. Uh, and so that's actually a nice sort of segue. And, you know, here on the Midlife Crisis Cards podcast, you know, we look at the business of the hobby and, you know, you clearly have been collecting, um, but we met because not only were you collecting, but you were selling too. And what I'd love to examine in the next 25 minutes that we have together is sort of the world of selling and, you know, we hear about Walmart and Kmart and Target. And not actually, does Kmart even exist? I don't know where that one came from. But uh, uh, <laughs> Kmart, did. I think, is out of business. <laughs> they did. Um, but, you know, we got Walmart and Target, you know, as the big sellers. And you got all the hobby shops. And then there's people like us. And, you know, to my knowledge, I don't think you have a physical hobby shop, but you could talk about that. Um, but you do have an online shop. Uh, you do appear at quite a few community events. You appear at conventions, et cetera. Um, and I would love to sort of double click into all of that. Um, sure. And I think it's, you know, we've got a ton to learn from what you're doing and how you're doing. You know, I, I followed your rise through your launch of the $5 card accounts and your $10 card accounts and watched all the copycats pop up within like days of that happening. And so yeah. clearly, <laughs> you know, um, you know, copycats are just flattery to, you know, whoever, you know, whoever started. So clearly you're doing some things correct. And I think that we all can learn from that. So let's, let's sort of dive into that. And so can you, can you walk us through 
how you run your business? Like, you know, sure. is it a business? Is it a hobby? Like, how do you think about that? Like what, what goes on from, you know, how do you select cards all the way through to, you know, how do you select where you're going to sell those cards and make those decisions? Sure. Yeah. I, it's always a hobby first for me. I, I would say that up front. Um, and that's how I treat the business end of it too. Um, and I think that's really important. Something about that. I have a full-time job, you know, and something about this um, that resonates well. And the reason that I want to do it is because I enjoy it. I enjoy bringing that enjoyment to other people. And, um, and this business um, has really come from my own personal collection. So in terms of what do I buy, what do I look for? I'd say 95% of what I buy is for my personal collection. It's stuff I like, it's players I like, it's stuff that I want to collect. Um, do I then sell a number of those things eventually? Yes. I kind of have a cycle and we can kind of go more into that, but I, I do have a cycle where things go into the PC. And then over time, as I you know end up having five or six autographs from the same player, I'll start to prioritize and go, you know what? I don't need five or six of these. I could keep two and yep. then let go of the rest. Um, and so it really does my kind of my whole spot. And what I always tell people is buy what you love, not what you think you can sell. Um, and so that's why I really feel like it's more of a hobby than a business, you know, by definition, even there, because I'm not buying a card with the notion of having inventory that I'm going to immediately sell 95% of the time. The other 5% of the time is I have established relationships with people like yourself, with people that have come to my site or come to my Instagram accounts and they tell me, hey, I'm really looking for this or I'm really looking for that. And because I have a really wide network of collectors that I'm dealing with all the time, I'm able to find stuff that a lot of people can't. Like if people yeah. are only looking on eBay to find a particular card, yeah, that is the number one world's marketplace for cards right now. But not every card in the world is on there, you know, and that's something that really that, that people like I think they forget that it's just one marketplace. Yeah. So yep, um, yep. so when I'm going to shows, I work with people that never list online. They don't have websites. They don't have an Instagram. They don't have a, an eBay. And that opens up a whole new realm. And these people have lots of cards, you know, that opens up a whole new realm of things to find. So, you know, so I have a guy who buys Allen Iverson stuff all the time, and I know his collection pretty well. I have a photographic memory I have since I was a kid. So I actually know pretty much every card. He has about 2000 cards in his collection. I know pretty much all of those by heart. If I see another card, I can tell you if he's got it or not. Um, so if you see one, you'll pick one up knowing I'll that pick it up for it. him. Yep. And that again, that's that 5% of the zone where I'm not buying it for me at that point. I know he's going to want it. So we'll either do a trade or he'll buy it for me in the future. You know, And that's so, just sort of that amazing sort of concierge, you know, service. That, totally. Uh, you know, and it, and I think that's important in the realm today, too. I think you've got some people that are chasing after the hype. You know, when they go into this, they think the business, most people that reach out to me with questions when it has to do with buying and selling a card are asking me, do you think if I buy this, I can sell it for more in a couple of weeks? And it's <laughs> weeks, so weeks, huh? weeks. And it's so unreasonable. But in some cases, those cards, we have seen those kinds of increases, you know, this year yeah. where we didn't used to. So someone could buy a card today for $50 and sell it for 75 two weeks from now. It was unheard of before. Um, so a lot of people ask about that. And, and I always tell them I can't. I don't have a you know crystal ball here. I can't tell you what the future of that card holds. All I can tell you is if you really like it, 
you know, other people will like it too. And if it's a player who's doing well and you're like really enjoying watching them play, then yeah, it's probably a good thing to pick up. Like yeah. it, it's, it's yeah. not rocket science. Um, the part of this industry that has gotten strange is around, you know, the eBay manipulation. And, and I've obviously talked about this on my YouTube series in, yeah. in great detail about how that's done and, and, you know, and, and why in some cases it's done. Um, but you see someone like a bowl bowl who comes out and his rookie card increases, you know, 10, 20, 30 X in a week. And then within a couple weeks later, you know, it's back down to almost where it was when you started. That kind of stuff is very unusual and it's being done on eBay. So if, if, if you kind of separate those from the in general where people are actually following players and they're seeing their careers grow like a Tyler hero, you see yeah. how his career is growing and how he's playing in the playoffs and the excitement, Jason Tatum, like you see these guys, and they're not just flashes in the pan. They've they've got they've had many great games, <laughs> and there's a good trend there. And so that's what I tell people like to look out, you know, look out for. Um, I notice you didn't name any of my Knicks there. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, some of the, they they've got a lot of they have a good area there to shine, right? Like you look at an RJ Barrett right now. There's a lot of people looking for his cards. Like he's a regular. I can't keep his stuff in stock at all. You know, like and and I pick it up. Because I'm like, oh, I should have a few RJ Barrett's. And then the next thing I know, someone's emailing me or sending me a message. Hey, do you have any RJ's? And I'm like, yeah, I do. And then they're gone. I got to go find more. <laughs> you know? Amazing. So it is. It's it, it, teams like the Knicks are a good room for place, a place for people to shine, you know. Um, and or so not, I think that's why some of them really do well. fast or fail. Well, that's super true, too. fast in the New York spotlight. So you said well, a feel, bunch yeah. of eBay there, though. So I want, yeah. I want to double click into this eBay side. So sure. to my knowledge, you know, I bought a bunch from you. I don't think I've ever seen you on eBay as, as no, a seller. So I don't sell on eBay at all. Nope. Why? Nope. Well, I mean, it's kind of a number and where of do you issues sell? there. Yeah, yeah. sure. So, um, so there's a couple of reasons there. One, um, everyone talks about the fees on there, which I think is the least of it, but it's important, you know, if you're a small seller, you're talking 10% plus, you know, you're giving giving away to eBay in those cases. But more so, um, it's the notion of an open return policy mm. that my friends who sell on their plenty keep telling me about is really the reason they hate it. And um, I, it's a little known fact to people who haven't sold on eBay much before or who haven't bought much on eBay before. But even as a seller, if you do not accept returns, you have a no return policy on eBay. You sell someone a card that is in perfectly great condition. It's it's exactly as described. You've provided photos. You provided the details. They purchase that card from you. 20 days, 25 days, 30 days down the line, when that player tanks for whatever reason, they get injured, they're out for the season, you know, whatever it might be, like a Clay Thompson. Like now there's yeah. talk about him just, you know, recently here where he's got he's he's got um, the ACL maybe an, an issue again. How many he's people will return because he's injured now? Yeah, exactly. Yep. And even though you don't accept returns as an eBay seller, eBay will force you to take the return. They will literally rip the money out of your bank account or out of your credit card. That's and crazy. that to me is just like they're not they're not a partner for the seller they're a partner for the buyer is really what it is it's a, a ebay is a place to buy cards the way that ebay treats those parties so i will buy cards on ebay 
rarely because stuff is so expensive. But I will buy, you know, buy stuff on there because it's very buyer friendly. But as a seller, it just seems like there's no, you know, even if you set terms, they can be completely ignored. And you as the seller, there's nothing you can do about it because they can just right. dip right in and take that money right out. So I, I think that's so a major, major problem. So I sell my website, basketballcardguy.com, which I created a couple of years ago. Um, it's a site that, you know, I sell singles. That's that's my zone. I don't sell wax. Um, I don't sell really anything other than single cards, but I have very detailed photos, um, detailed descriptions as well. And you can really look at it. And if you want, I'll shoot a video of a card. I do that for a lot of people before I even mail it out. Like, do you want how detailed do you want me to go with this? Because I want people to have that experience like they have at a card show where you get to hold it, see it, everything other than hold it, obviously online, but you get close enough to it that you're seeing every aspect of it. Um, honesty is super important. If I mess up, like if I don't see something, I actually shipped out a card the other day, didn't notice it had a little blemish on the back. And the guy noticed it, you know, days later after getting it, shot me an image of it. And I'm like, what? I shoot photos and videos of stuff before I ship it out. And I look back to the photo and I'm like, oh my God, it is on there. I had this card for years, but never noticed no this idea. thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so do you take I'm it back more- or? I was more than happy to take it back or I said, or I'll or offer a partial refund, you know? And so we, we came to an agreement on a partial refund and he was so thankful about it. And he's like, look, I want to keep buying stuff from you. I love working with you. He's been on my $5 account, my $10 account. And this was a big card too, but it was like, you know, easy to work with again. But that aspect comes back to the fact that for me, it's a hobby first. I want to make sure that when someone buys something from me, that they enjoy it, that they like it. And look, if they're buying from me to flip it, which plenty of people do, that's fine too, as long as they're getting what they want out of it, you know? Right. And that's the key. I just want everyone to be happy in that zone. And look, so you can't make everybody happy all the time, but, you know, you can strive for that at the very least. Absolutely. So when you're selling, you know, you've got the website. Uh, yes. which I've seen is is quite the site, you know, robust search and everything. You can you can find things. Uh, but then you also have your uh, Instagram accounts. Uh, yes. And so I, I'm curious how you came up with the, those ideas. Uh, yeah. and, and you should tell us all like what they are and how they work. Um, sure. And I'm curious on how you make that happen. Like what's the, what's the science behind it? Yeah. So my main Instagram account, uh, account is at basketball card guy, all one word. Um, no spaces or anything in there. Um, and that main account is I, I kind of showcase both my PC and some things that I've, you know, recently put up for sale. Um, so that's a good way to kind of just see where my mindset is, what things I'm excited about. Cause look, I'm still the hobbyist, you know, like as much as I'm (laughs) selling some cards, I have a lot more cards that I'm not selling and I'm more than happy to share that with people, the excitement about things. And so when I get a card that's huge for my PC, I share that as well. Um, And it's a great way to just interact with a community on that and really share. And it helps me find more things I'm looking for when people are like, oh, I didn't realize you were collecting that set. I got two of those. Would this help? It's just awesome. And that's what's so great about the community. I launched two other Instagrams this year uh, at $5 cards, the number five, uh, all one word, and at $10 cards with 10 spelled out T-E-N. I actually own the one with the one zero. I'm locked out of it, though. <laughs> so I registered that at the same time. I couldn't get in, and Instagram support is horrible. So, uh, so at $5 cards with the number five and at $10 cards with T-E-N at the head. Um, those two accounts, I just came up with this notion because as COVID had happened, 
it was really restricting the shows. And so I've been doing card shows for the last few years. It was a great place so you're to talking meet about card people. shows, like in person, in person. Yep. Like at the VFWs or a big convention hall, um, you know, things like that, where people where individual vendors are coming out and selling and trading, you know, mm-hmm. that day you pay a dollar to get in. And then you're, you know, like if you're if you're a, uh, a visitor, you know, and you can go and bring your cards and trade or buy stuff and find stuff. I've been a frequenter of those shows, you know, since the 90s. Like that was a, you know, a big deal for me. That's where I got most of my big cards. We um, must have overlapped at the Westchester County Center. We definitely did at some point, you know, the Gloria Rothstein show it was at the yes. time. Uh, those were great shows, you know, and they were big. They were the biggest one, you know, in or near New York City. It wasn't in New York City, it was half an hour outside. Um, but you know, regularly 300 vendors and, you know, and it happened every about two months that they had one of these shows for full weekend. Um, so those shows were a great place uh, and shows in general, a great place to pick up cards. Uh, the notion for $5 and $10 cards came out of the fact that when I did shows, when I started doing them, I made a $5 box and a $10 box. That's where it came from. Yep. And so I felt like with COVID going on, I have all these cards that I've already set aside to put in those boxes to allow people to buy. And they were always popular boxes. Like people would go through those, you know, pick out all their favorite players and stuff because they're all reasonably priced things. Mm -hmm. I was just like, you know what? This I need a way to bring it to the Internet. Putting it on my website is, as you know now, Darren, you, you have your own website, same kind of platform, is tedious. To sit there and photograph and list and do all this stuff for a $5 card, it's just too much work. And then to have it cataloged correctly so people can, I mean, it is just, and then to catalog that card so that you can go find it when someone buys it, I mean, it's just too much. Um, so I, I actually, about a year and a half ago, my first experimentation with this idea of the $5 and $10 box was doing a Flickr account. So I registered nice. a Flickr account. I popped all the cards on there and they were in sections 5, 10, 15 and $20 cards and people would order by number. I put numbered stickers on each one. So I literally just sat down. I scanned 2000 cards on a flatbed scanner. I have an Epson. What is this? A four? The V600. It's underneath my computer. Um, nice. The V600. And what it does, this scanner is great, too. It actually crops for you. So you throw six cards on it. It crops them out, makes them separate files. It's it's beautiful. It does so it automatically. Just, automatically. Yeah. That's so I, amazing. <laughs> so I literally stuck stickers, uh, numbered stickers on all these cards, pop six of them at a time into the flatbed scanner. It goes through. It does all the cropping for me, saves them into folder, blah, blah, blah. And then I literally just dumped the entire folder onto Flickr. And then people would go on my Flickr and then just send me an email message like I want this one, this one, this one, this one. And as soon as they bought them, I took them off. And then so that was like kind of that space for it. Um, the I never got like a ton of like it was hard to convert Instagram traffic into Flickr, like to get yeah. people to link. Part of it is, you know, Instagram doesn't allow you to link like physically link to an outside link until you have 10,000 followers. That's the mark at which they let you do it in your stories. So I didn't have 10,000 followers. So I'm like, you know, I'm not getting enough people to kind of jump over there. Um, So that's when I was like, you know what? I wonder if I converted this out the same notion. But what if I just did it as separate Instagram accounts? Because I can link to them. And so I can get more people to move. So that's when I launched. I started with five dollar cards. I launched that. I announced it. And in about two weeks, without having a single post, uh, I had 300 followers on it. 
without even posting yet. So there was a built in audience before I even began, which was really important, you know, and, and that that comes from good marketing and just yes. getting people you know excited about it. It now has over a thousand. I'm only two or three months into it, it has over a thousand followers now uh, and it's very active. Uh, and as you know, being a participant in that as well, it, I did not think it was going to be as quick to sell as it is. Oh my, my goodness. <laughs> you, you sell in like, I, so I follow these accounts and even in the early days when it was just the 300 of us following, you know, these accounts, cards sold in less than 10 seconds. Like yeah. you, you basically had to create a notification. The way I game the system was I, I left Instagram. I created a notification for you. And every time that you posted, the notification would, would, uh, would pop up and I'd immediately have to go in and, and, and type sold. Like it was crazy. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It was, and I didn't like that. Was not something that I had planned. Yeah, I didn't think it would be that crazy at all. Like when when creating it, I literally was doing it as a replacement for my Flickr account, which again was like a repository of cards. And then I figured people would come in and claim things slowly, and then as they did, you know, ship them out, you know, and and do that. But yeah, people loved the deals. They wanted to get in on it. I had a lot of you know, and, and a lot of that too is figuring out what's trendy or hot right now and so like a lot of people like prism stuff they like the silver prisms they like the colored stuff they like the numbered cards they like cards of lebron james and kobe bryant and anthony davis the people that are like up in the news or you know are on their way to win the finals and so my trick there was always let me take the portion of my collection i mean i have hundreds of thousands of cards at this point so let me take the portion of my collection that's relevant today right now and put that on those accounts you know because it's funny like I, I had like leftover like Jason Tatum's and things like that that I had had kind of put in the queue to put up and I put those I put one up yesterday and it didn't sell it didn't go in that hmm. five ten second zone shocking um but during the playoffs I mean that would have been gone in five seconds that's I would same, have thought I mean he's part. in the news because of the 195 million dollar contract he just signed well, he, one, so I had put up two yesterday. One of them sold, the other one didn't. But like, <laughs> so, but it, it would, but normally, like, if it's, if it's um, relevant at that point, it would definitely go. And so that's part of it, too. It's just understanding um, it's like I collect, you know, thinking about my PC and the kinds of things that I love, but it's being aware of what the rest of the world is looking for that makes you a good seller, you know? Absolutely. And that's a really and hooking good point. people up with that, you know? Yeah. You got to read your audience, know what they want and know what's coming out there. And, and so, prioritizing. Yeah. That's, and that's key. And so, you know, we've talked about Instagram, we've talked about the website and then, you know, what a lot of us grew up going to are the local card shows and yeah. you know, the community events and you've, you know, following you and watching you do these and, you know, COVID's happened. So I haven't been able to come out and, you know, say hi, but, um, you know, you've been active and, you know, what are, you know, explain what goes on at a card show from, you know, a seller's perspective. I'm super curious sure. from like a seller perspective. Like, how do you yeah. even get involved? Like, who do you call? Like, you know, how, yeah. do you get a table? Like, how does that work? Uh, and then, you know, I'd love to go into like, you know, top five things you've done right or like a couple things you've done wrong. And, you know, if I'm a if I'm a buyer coming to this show, you know, what are tips to get, you know, good deals from sellers there? Absolutely. You don't have to remember um, all that. I'll, I'll no, I'll you got it. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, card shows are 
are really a great place to sell. Um, they are organized. They're all organized by different people. It's usually an individual who's a collector. Uh, in the case of the shows in Connecticut that I do, um, most of them are organized by a husband and wife that are um, supply suppliers. So they do like the top uh -huh. loaders and that stuff. So they're the kind of the anchor store, so to speak, in the mall, you know, of that is this card show because everyone needs supplies when they come out. And so it really behooves them to plan a show around it because as people are buying cards around the show, they're it's all going to the come to them in the end. plan for them. It's amazing. Yep. It's just like the people at, you know, Stormville flea market that I set up at back in the 90s in Stormville, New York. Huge flea market still exists today. They have a thousand vendors on an airport strip. Um, the people that run it own all of the food. So all these people, you got thousands upon thousands of people going around and shopping. Wow. They don't allow a single food vendor in other than their own. It's the and business so, of the hobby right there. It is, you know, so. Um, so you'll see in a lot of cases, the people that run the shows have some sort of an interest in that. Um, in terms of setting up there, the it ranges in prices depending on the show. So the the kind of local shows I do in Connecticut that are uh, 30 to 40 table shows, meaning that there's 30 or 40 vendors that set up, uh, they run about $30 to $40 a day for the table. Uh, and you usually set up from like 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. is the typical kind of time slot there. So five hour show usually on a Saturday or a Sunday, 30 to 40 bucks for a kind of a small show like that. Um, most of them, they have the table there for you and, and the chairs. So you're bringing your own everything else. Um, and if you're thinking about setting up at a show, you know, there's a few bits of advice there that I can give. Certainly. Um, well, first is knowing the size of your table. Yep. Some of these shows, you get a six foot table. Some of them, you get an eight foot table. Some of them, you get a four foot table. That makes a big difference in what you can display. Um, some of the shows, like the White Plains show that we that we both visited when we were younger, um, they give you a booth there, not a table, quote unquote. What's the difference? They also charge a, a lot booth? more. So a table is just kind of a you know here's your four to eight foot table, you know, like is it, and then you've got that, and you're directly next to someone else. At the county center shows in Westchester, they give you an eight foot table and a six foot table arranged in an L. And so you wow. every vendor is on a corner. So they have like squares. If you think about squares being put and it's done on a basketball court, basically. So if you think about just a bunch of squares being drawn throughout a basketball court, it gives everyone a prime space. So no one's like in the middle of a row, you know, like yep, yep. you you have a prime. But the booths are four hundred dollars for the weekend. So it's a At big the county difference. center. At the county center, and so and so, if it's four hundred at like for a booth. What yep. is it usually for a table at a show ballpark? So the regular show is like thirty bucks if you're going to like a Connecticut show or something oh, wow. like that. Small so to show sell at a regular a show is yep. like thirty dollars a day. Thirty bucks. That a sounds. Day. That yep. sounds. You can clear that with you know a card. Exactly, and that's what's great about it, and that's why it's nice to set up. Most of the shows in Connecticut, when COVID's not going on, are full, so you can get on a waiting list, you know, and you talk to the people that run the shows, and they're only full because the places that they're booked are tiny, you know, like uh, a lot of them are yeah. in VFWs or they're in a church or like they're finding places to do it, and they just don't have enough space. Um, so the the economics of that are pretty good if you're setting up at a small show. The Westchester County show. The economics yep. can be good there, too. But again, you're on a different scale. Now, now you're looking at a three day show, four hundred dollars total for the three days. So you're paying, you know, one hundred and thirty three dollars a day. Um, 
so it's significantly more than a day at one of the smaller shows, but the audience there is much bigger. Um, people fly in for those shows. The Dallas show that happened recently is kind of like one of those shows. I would assume their tables. I don't know what they cost, but I would assume they're probably in that kind of a realm. Yeah. Um, and they become more of a destination show. A lot more people come. Um, but yeah, so the 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 card show itself uh, is definitely worthwhile. A few tips around like kind of setting up for those. So first is knowing the size of your table because that's that's your space, right? It's yeah. just like if you're going to really build a store. Point. Yeah, you know, yeah. like to plan out because there's some people that will bring way too little and then there's some people that bring way too much and then you have no way to display it. And um, and that leads me to kind of the, the main point is seeing something sells something. So if you have a great card, that, you know, like you've got a, you know, uh, an Anthony Davis rookie autograph worth a grand. If people don't know you have it, you can't sell it. So if it's just sitting in a box and you brought 20 boxes with you and people have to fish through the boxes, it's very hard to sell something like that. So how do you um, display everything? Like, do you so have to bring I like you bring showcases. Stuff? Yeah. Okay. So you bring. So most of the vendors in these shows have their own showcases. Uh, in the case of bigger shows, they'll actually rent you showcases if you need them. Like the White Plains show is one that has a bunch of showcases that they've purchased and you can oh, wow. rent them for a nominal fee. So you don't have to own your own cases. Um, I own four showcases at this point from doing shows. I kind of upgraded the cases over time. I always bought them used. Um, sometimes you go to a show. This is a great tip. Like if, if you're thinking about doing a show, go to a show and see if anyone will sell you their case. Like if they get an old one that maybe, you know, or that well, you see like, one. Are those like hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars? All mine I bought for 30 to $40 a piece. A nice oh, wow. showcase, you know, big plastic, plastic topped, but then the metal rims, the the, the classic ones you see at yeah. shows, 30 to 40 bucks a piece. I got them at flea markets and otherwise uh, I haven't paid over 40 for any of them. So, um, so yeah, you can find the deals on that. It also makes you look more professional. Um, yes. I think it sets you apart. There are a number of people that will come to the shows and just put their cards out on a table and just like brick them next to each other so that, you know, they have like a wall of cards. I imagine so can tell if one's a security missing. nightmare. It is. You could tell if one's missing pretty easily if someone takes one because now you've got a hole in your brick wall. But um, but it's also too late at that point because they've made off with the card. Um, but it also just feels more premium when you have to reach into a case or even unlock the case and take yep. the card out. Most of these cases come with locks. So, you know, so that it just has that premium feel um, that I think is also important when you're doing a show like that. That being said, aside from knowing your space, aside from prioritizing what you have and being displaying the things you know will sell is knowing the audience. So there are shows that I do that I don't bring a card out that's worth over $100, not hmm. a single one. I will bring the $5 and $10 boxes. I'll bring some $20 boxes. I'll put out a showcase, but the stuff in there is like 50 bucks, 40 bucks, because I know the people that come to those shows don't spend a lot of money. Then there's another show that I do that I don't have anything in the case that's under $100. Because I know the people that come to that show generally bring a lot of cash and they're looking for high-end stuff. And in is fact, all of are all the shows cash or can you take credit card? or how does You it can work? take credit card. Um most people pay in cash. Um, there are even there are some shows that I do, and I'm very select selective with this. But there are some people I will even take checks from because they're such regulars that yeah. I only see them once a month, and they're like, "Oh my god, I really want to take this home. I don't want to wait another month to see you." 
Um, so like if they want to write a check at that point, you know, I'll, I'll do it. Um, but yeah, I mean, if you've got Square or, you know, Shopify or any of these things, you could have a or PayPal, you can have a card yeah. reader there. Uh, I would say credit cards are uncommon. Um, Interesting. PayPal, okay. PayPal, on the other hand, is very common. So I'd say cash is number one. A close second is PayPal. People will do a PayPal transaction right as you're there um, when you're in person. So, but yeah, so that's pretty much how the shows go. So if I'm coming to a show yep, and I paid my dollar to get in uh, as a buyer, uh, you know, what are tips for me as a buyer coming to the show? You know, now that you've been on the sell sure. side, like, can you negotiate, like, is it rude to, like, is there etiquette around negotiation? Is yeah. it, can you ask to see cards? Like, like what, what's the etiquette? Like what are two or three things of etiquette for a show? Negotiation is almost expected. Um, and if someone's firm on a price, that's fine, but they shouldn't shun you for asking. I mean, I, I think that's, there are some guys that have their stuff stickered and that's the price mm -hmm. and that's it. And that's fine. Um, but they're not going to, they shouldn't shun you for saying, Hey, can you do a little bit on this? Or can I, what if I put right. things together? But not like obnoxious negotiation. Like if stickers are right. hundred and I offer 22, it's like, you know, yeah, I wouldn't do down. that. It's, yeah, it's kind of this, I, I, the same etiquette is like buy it now or best offer. You know, you can look, if you're coming in there and, and you see a card that's marked a hundred, but you've seen 16 of them sell for $20 a piece on eBay. You can say to the person, hey, I'm just kind of wondering, is there something special about this one? Could you make good, it polite. Yeah. You know, like, is there something special about this one? I, I really like it, but I noticed that, you know, a lot of these are not that much money, you know. Um, and, and sometimes the dialogue there, if you get a very good seller, a nice seller, they'll go, if it isn't special, they'll go, oh, my, I didn't even realize I, I had this price from six months ago. I didn't even know it came down. Sure, I'll, I'll sell it to you for the 20 bucks. Like, so if it's a reasonable offer, I think it's well worth making. Um, but it is important to realize that a lot of the guys that sell at these shows are not eBay guys, at least at the shows that I do. So telling them, well, this is what it sold for on eBay. That can be kind of rude if your expectation is that they have to match what it sold for on eBay. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of those guys, if you take that tact, they just say, go buy it on eBay then. You know, like, which I think is a reasonable thing for them to say at that point. You know, it's a different marketplace. Yeah. So um, the other thing, the other question I have is I pull up to your booth. I look at your cards. And again, I'm the buyer. I look at your cards yep. and I pull out my phone and pull up eBay or sell the peak or card ladder <laughs> or, you know, sure. some other tool. Is that rude? Or like, you it know, is people are rude. doing it. But like, yeah. how, how do you do it in a way that doesn't upset, you know? The seller. Yeah. So I walk away. So the, the number one recommendation I have is this. Um, if you're coming to a show to shop, just to shop around, make the rounds first. Walk around and make kind of a whole circle. If it's a circular room, just, you know, like or a rectangle kind of thing. Yeah. Walk around, see everything kind of quickly. See what stands out in your mind. If they're if the prices aren't labeled, a lot of people don't label ask what a card is, you know, what this card costs. And as you're walking from table to table is a perfect opportunity for you to look up that last card you just got a price on. Not rude. You're just making your pass. So now you can do a little pricing research and say, oh, okay, well, there's a buy it now on eBay right now I could go buy that's $20 less than that. 
is it is it worth more for me to be able to inspect the card in person here? Are these conditions sensitive? Like there is something there is value to having the card in hand and being able to see it before Amen. you buy it, which you Amen. don't get on e- eBay. So I will pay a little bit more in person on something just to be able to hold it and see it. But if you look at it, and you're like, no, I mean, these are all good. They're like prism cards. They're all cut fine. It's like not going to be a big issue. Um, then, you know, kind of have that in the back of your mind. But that's the non rude way is to not like standing there looking up prices in front of someone that changes if you're friends with them or if you've done a lot of business with them before. Um, there's one person in particular at the shows that I go to where we do a lot of business and the full expectation, he's kind of pulling prices out of his head and the full expectation is that he wants me to go and check and see what they're at, you know, yeah. online and try and be comparable. So it really depends on the rapport you have with that person. But I would say make the rounds first, but, if you see something on your first round that's a card that you've been looking for, that's really rare, that you know is going to get bought up by somebody else, get it then. It will drive you, you run the nuts risk. if you make that yeah. circle and you don't get it. Um, you know, it's just some of these cards that come out at these shows, you wouldn't believe. And some of them are like wildly underpriced. Like some people will put out a card and they just they don't know that the market went up on somebody. Um, you know, so, you know, take it while you can get it at that point. Um, you know, if someone's like still going off a price guide on, on Luka Doncic from two years ago, you know, you, you see a prism, you know, prism rookie for $20 sitting in a case. It's totally possible. It's totally possible. And that person bought it for 50 cents or a dollar. Like they don't care selling it at 20 bucks. Like don't walk around, just buy it <laughs> you know, yep. like at that point, you know? So, yeah. So as a seller, and we'll wind this down soon. But as a as a seller at a at a card show, do prices across tables for a similar or same card vary widely? And how does that normalize if it does by the end of the show? Single cards, I, I think for the most part, the if it's like a rookie card or something like that where they had a pretty large production they'll be somewhat close to begin with. Okay. Um, it, it's the bigger cards that are, you know, numbered or otherwise that may have more of a kind of a, you know, a, a difference between them. Um, I don't see the prices of cards normalizing hardly ever. What I do see normalizing by the end of a show are wax prices. Uh. And it used to be a lot of these shows used to be run by wax guys. So same way as a supplier, the wax guy would be the only wax guy there and would build a show around himself so that when you come in buying singles, he's the only guy you can buy or she's the only person you can buy boxes from, which, again, is a smart, smart place to be. Um, They that does normalize. People will go around and specifically ask only because now. Uh, it used to be one wax guy. I would say that there's at least six to seven tables out of 30 that are selling wax now at these wow. shows. It's gone up that much because these guys are all, and they're, it's all retail. Like they all just took it from Target and Walmart. Not took it, they bought it. But like they all <laughs> like, went in there buying as much as they could and they're all fighting for it, you know. Um, so it's created this kind of new market for that. And so there is more wax at the small shows than there ever was before. And people buy that stuff so cheap. You know, they're buying a blaster for 20 bucks at retail. And then it's supposed to sell for 80 or 100 now. Like that's what it goes for on eBay. 
So people may try and be competitive and lower it to 75, and then the next guy's lowering it to 70. I mean, they're only in it for 20 bucks. Their margin is huge already. They could sell for 35 bucks and be fine too, you know? So there is competition in that, um, uh, certainly, but on the single cards, I don't see it as much. All right. So we're going to play word association. Sounds good. And I've got three different words. We'll do one at a time. And I want to know what comes to mind when I say one of these words. Now, for those listening, this isn't going to be random. For those listening, this is all about what we've talked about through this podcast so far. Um, And so the first word is Shopify. Mm -hmm. I would love to know what comes to mind when I say Shopify. Well, it's a great platform for selling and being able to get your own stuff up. I use it. I know you use it. Um, it's, uh, It's certainly an easy to use space that you can um, certainly create an e-commerce website. Um, I have some qualms with them, yes. certainly. I think uh, everyone does. recently, um, you know, but uh, the, some policies changing and things like that. Um, but they do, uh, they do have a very robust platform that allows you to um, post things and sell them and accept credit card payments or PayPal. You can do in there too, um, through there. So yeah, I, I would say the word association is one word. It's... Um, you know, selling online or selling would be my, you know, Shopify selling on your own would be, you know, kind of a good, um, selling more independently, you know, I I don't know. You're still going through a service uh, about that, which is actually an interesting point, right? You're still going through a service, but Shopify is different than eBay in that, um, your, their supply, you're creating the store, Actually, yeah, let's let's track that back a little bit, right? Because there, there's even a tax implication that's different, a sales tax implication here. Um, eBay, as everyone or as many of you know, if you've purchased a card recently. So this is going to be our charging second sales. word. So we're going into eBay now. Okay, cool. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> uh, as I say, so eBay, they charge, um, they have to charge sales tax now in like yes. 34 or 35 states. Tax nexus, yeah. Um, because they take they take in, I think it's over two hundred thousand dollars in over a certain amount of transactions uh, a year, and that's the that's the mark. Shopify gets around that because they're not they're not the marketplace, right? You know, in my case, basketballcardguy.com is the marketplace. Yep. In your case, midlife crisis that all of those are marketplaces of their own. So we would be responsible if I sold two hundred thousand dollars a year to a specific state. Now I have to start collecting sales tax there, just like eBay has had to do in all their places. So it's it's created a little bit different of a feel there. That's an aside. So um, word association for eBay. Good He's place thinking. to buy. Yeah, yeah. Good place to buy. Not a great place to sell. I like it. And then the third and final is local card show. Great place to meet people and a great place to buy and sell. Sounds like a win-win. Hey, basketball card guy, you've been amazing. I want to thank you first and foremost for welcoming me back into the hobby. And It's been a pleasure. All of our conversations have always been interesting. For those uh, that probably don't know, you know, 
we will DM back and forth and basketball card guy introduced me to the audio DM, which has been uh, something that I've been using uh, quite a bit. Uh, and he's inspired me in many different directions. So I want to personally say thank you. And I think it's only fitting that you are the first guest on the Midlife Crisis Cards podcast. And I, for those that can't see and you won't be able to see because we only post audio. I've got a huge grin on my face and uh, I'm super excited. It's like, you know, a fan meeting their favorite basketball player. I just want to say thank you to Jonathan and Basketball Card Guy for spending some time with us today. Thank my you. Pleasure. Happy early holidays. Stay safe and let's go next. <laughs> you as well. <laughs> Thanks, Darren. So there you have it. The first Midlife Crisis Cards podcast is in the books with Jonathan from Basketball Card Guy. Now that was an awesome episode because Jonathan is like all of us. He's a collector, he also sells his cards. And I hope you found some nuggets in this podcast about how you can sell your cards uh, more creatively, uh, more effectively, and more efficiently. Jonathan spoke about selling cards on his own website using Shopify. He gave a bunch of reasons why he doesn't use eBay. He talked about Instagram and other social platforms to sell. And to me, most importantly, he talked about the local card show and other sort of local ways of selling cards, which many of us haven't even uh, uh, ventured to go do. There were a lot of nuggets in this podcast for selling, uh, and I hope you all enjoyed. Thank you very much for listening, and we will speak to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Midlife Crisis Cards Podcast. We had a ton of fun putting this episode together. And we want to thank you for listening. We want to hear from you, so please don't be a stranger. You can reach Darren at, at Midlife Crisis Cards on Instagram or at dherman76 on Twitter. If you want to stop by and check out our collection of cards, listen to other podcasts, or have fun configuring our new product, the Cardboard Box, a set of hand-curated sports cards delivered to your door, come visit midlifecrisiscards.com. Until next time, stay safe, stay classy, and let's go Knicks.